today's episode, Violence and Murder by the State and the People of Ancient Rome. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget my other two podcasts. I speak with well-known sci-fi author Andy Weir about his latest novel on Full Contact Nerd Interviews. I speak with Eric Berger about the early days of SpaceX at Technology and Space. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Sutton, author of A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Murder in Ancient Rome, published by Abrams Press, March 9th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Of all the places I ever expected to be, a military history podcast is not high up on it. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the book, is, as you mentioned in your email, um, the book is about murder in Rome, but um, I think the individuals involved and, and sort of the practices of murder in the political sphere of Rome, I think, has, has a lot of impacts on Roman history and, and, you know, their military activities and that sort of thing, so... Yeah, so so basically, first, how did you get into um, studying and writing a book on murder in ancient Rome? <laughs> um, it started because I'm, um, I kind of, I've had kind of an interest in true crime, and I was talking to a friend of mine who is a teacher, a history teacher in Georgia, and she was telling me that she uses true crime as a way to teach her students about um, changing um, mores and changing social situations in the past. So she'll talk about Jeffrey Dahmer in order to talk about like homophobia or she'll talk about H.H. H. Holmes to talk about um how transient the world was in the 19th century America and the growth of American cities. And I thought that's amazing. I bet someone's written a really good book about how you know crime and murder tells us stuff about roman world and the changing roman world um, and nobody had and after about three days of searching to find something i thought well i'm just gonna have to do it so, <laughs> um, so i did and it turns out that rome you know when you look at the way that they treated murder and how it evolved as a political tool and as a tool for governing the empire and then how that changed how they handled it. It really does tell you a lot about the Roman world. Mm -hmm. So tell me, so, so I have started reading the book and I'm really enjoying it um, a lot. And, and I will mention some, some people both um, praise and complain that it's in a very <laughs> c conversational and, and irreverent style. Yeah, you love it or you hate it. That's okay. <laughs> I love it, and I think it really helps helps teach the history in, in a memorable way. Um, yeah. So I'll just say, just as a pitch for the book, I'm really enjoying it. So, so tell me how you lay it out. I, I've started reading it, so but but tell um, listeners and viewers how you break it down. So I broke it down by looking at different types of murder. So murder in the political sphere, murder in the domestic sphere, murder as a spectacle, so as gladiatorial games or as um, capital punishment, religious murder, and then murder in the slave state and how slavery impacts that. Um, and then 
each section is broken down into different cases broadly. So different murders that we know happened um, and how they were treated by the Romans and whether they treated them as murder at all, because there's a lot of the ones, uh, the cases that I cover in the book or the incidents that I cover in the book are not considered by the Romans to be murder. They're considered to be um, either an everyday facet of life or as a, a homicide, as a person killing a person, but a justified homicide, or as a sport sometimes, as a thing to be enjoyed and um, watched as entertainment. Mm -hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit about the idea, just how much um, Romans were surrounded by death and killing um, and actually, um, can you mention sort of the time range that you look at uh, in the yeah. book? Yeah, so I looked at um, broadly from about the mid-Republic, late Republic. So the earliest part is really um, the murder of Tiberius Gracchus, who is a politician who was murdered by the Senate, who became so furious at him and his attempts at land reform that they tore up benches and beat him to death while he was in the middle of an election. And then goes through to about Constantine, because there are that's when you get the first laws against not being allowed to deliberately murder slaves. So that's around about the early 4th century AD. Mm -hmm. So it's about a 500-year period of Roman history that I cover, mm -hmm. um, going from the end of, as the Republic crumbles and then the imperial system is built up. And then as the imperial system changes and grows and becomes more embedded, and then the rise of Christianity, how those things change, how murder is conceived of. Mm -hmm. And so, and so back to the question about the amount of violence and death that surrounded Romans. Can you touch it's on a that? Lot. A bit? It's a surprising amount. It is, um, you don't, unless you think about it deliberately, which I did for a couple of years, then it's really easy to not think about it at all because they don't mention it very often. And the reason that they don't mention it is because it is so deeply embedded in their everyday surroundings like mentioning the existence of water or something it is um they are capital punishment is a very um embedded part of roman life and the bigger the empire gets the more capital punishment becomes a regular thing really and they made sure that when someone was being executed for something that it was done in the most public way possible. So if uh, enslaved people were crucified, then they crucified them in the most populous parts of town, outside the gates and on the biggest roads so that everybody would see them. Mm -hmm. When they executed people in the arena, they did it in the middle of the day so that people would see them. Sometimes they had whole days of executions. And it is astonishing how deliberate they put that violence and that death in front of people and made it so that it was unmissable really mm -hmm. and then people who were if the higher up you were in the social structure the less public your execution would be mm -hmm. but they would still put your body on display um so you wouldn't be crucified for example if you're a roman citizen but you or if you're a senator you might get beheaded but your beheaded body would be put on display and thrown down some steps and so there is a surprising amount of literal dying people and death um, all over Rome all the time and all over Roman cities. 
And then on top of that, you have the fact that the whole system is built on a foundation of slavery mm-hmm. and slaves are not people. And the structure of how Romans dealt with their slaves and the more slave, the more enslaved people they brought into the cities and brought into their homes, the more violent they became towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the violence that they talk about very casually towards enslaved people is you know from <laughs> from a modern perspective really horrifying like they will beat them happily without a second thought they um where they can kill them for absolutely no reason whatsoever and when you get the laws which prevent them from being killed is when you start when you see lists of ways in which slaves were killed so mm-hmm. constantine finally um in the 4th century introduces a law that says you can't kill them on purpose if you happen to accidentally beat one to death then that's okay but he then lists off all the ways in which you can't execute them so he says you can't set them on fire you can't throw them off a cliff you can't beat them to death you can't strangle them you can't, and you're like wow <laughs> this is a really long list of ways in which people are just killing other people inside their houses mm-hmm. um and and you, we find these adverts for like people who will execute your slave for you if you can't be bothered to do it yourselves. Like you pay one solidy and they'll come and and you pay for the materials for the uh, cross and they'll come and crucify your slave for you. Yeah. Um, and so it was a real realization that it's not just in the arena where violence and death and very very deliberate murder are happening on a regular basis, but in the household and on the streets there is also. A, a lot of um, of blood and dying. So in the book, when I read about uh, just the sheer number of slaves in Rome, it brought to mind another interview I did on Roman military history where, you know, sometimes they would conquer people and they'd have so many, sla- so many people captured that they could almost, they could, it was almost difficult to give away these yeah. slaves. There were so many and they were so cheap. So it just... So one thing that I wonder is, um, with all these people of different cultures and languages flowing into Rome as slaves, did you come across any, anything that talked about, I guess that that's how they took care of them, you know, or taught them the Roman way was, was with violence and, and murder and killing. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, they are very, uh, they're very anxious as you, the empire gets bigger and they get these huge numbers of people being brought in, trafficked into Rome and to Italy. They get very, very anxious at the top kind of the Senate and the, um, uh, economic and political elite become very worried about it because they realize that they have hundreds of thousands of people who are, have intimate access to them and, outnumber them quite significantly Mm -hmm. Um, and so they institute quite a lot of of ways of making sure one they had they start writing manuals for one another on like how to keep your enslaved people in your household from talking to each other so don't put don't buy loads of slaves from one place um mix them up so have your people from thrace and your people from gaul so they can't talk to each other Um, and but they will also in the institute laws that enact incredibly harsh punishments for any kind of infraction mm-hmm. so any minor infraction can end with an individual being killed immediately and there's a famous case uh, where a guy 
um, attempts to kill a slave for just dropping a plate. And the punishment that he has devised for his enslaved people is so horrific that the Emperor Augustus prevents him from going through with it. But if he hadn't been that, then it would have been a thing that happened. Mm. Um, but if the if there is an incident whereby an enslaved person kills a free person, particularly their master or their owner, then every single slave in that household is crucified regardless of how many slaves there are. So there is a very famous case which happens in the reign of Nero where um, a guy is stabbed by one of his slaves and he has in that household 400 slaves, um, ranging from elderly people to children. And that's such a huge number of people that are going to be killed that the, uh, the Senate has a bit of a debate about whether like, that might be too much even for them to have tiny children executed for this. And they decide that, and um, this is recorded by Tacitus, and he says that he the speech that he writes for them is, there are so many of them, there are so many slaves, and we as senators, as Romans, go home and they are in our houses and they have access to us while they sleep. And if we don't punish this as harshly as we can, if we don't keep them terrified constantly, then they will they will think that they can do whatever they want. Um, And so they decide that they're going to execute all 400 people. So they have them all crucified just outside the gates. And that is, that's how they manage to, and they're very explicit about it. This is what we're going to do. This is how we control the sheer numbers of people that we have trafficked in, who large numbers of whom were born free, Mm -hmm. um, which is that we are going to make sure that any infraction of any kind is treated as harshly as possible and not give anybody an, a millimeter of space to think that they can, that they can, you know, rebel against this in any way and to make, and collective punishment as well. Like it's not just you that's going to go down. If you, if you try to harm your master, it is also every single other person in this house. I'm speaking with Emma Sethan author of A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. You can find more information about her work at emmasouthern.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. This makes me wonder, and again, I'm sorry, I'm straying into military history, which isn't a <laughs> thing, but... I'll do my best. It just makes me think um, about the Roman way of war. Like, if you have Romans who are so used to all this bloodshed and violence, do they, you know, are they that violent on the battlefield, or do they think, no, we want as many slaves as possible, so we're going to be kind at war and then, and then mean back at home. 
Well, what they tend to do is um, they like to kill all the all the men, as many men as possible, and then take all of the women and children. So mm. <laughs> um, they absolutely. Um, like when Caesar goes through Gaul and when they go, they are very clear that if you resist Rome, then you will, um, then your centers of population are going to be destroyed because we're going to either kill you or take you home. Um, but uh, they make a lot of money off of slavery. <laughs> so, so let me ask about the um, early in the book, you talk about the gangs, the political gangs that are wandering through Rome um, and in one instance, the Romans called, uh, I, I guess the incident with Claudius or Clodius was a, a battle. They called it a battle, but it yeah. was more like <laughs> political thugs rioting in the streets. C- can you talk a little bit about these political gangs? Yeah, they're kind of like almost like paramilitaries that were developed. So this happened right at the end of the Republic. Um, and the two, um, the two senators who are, most associated with them are um, Publius Clodius Pulcher, who is this notorious uh, populist, and a guy called Titus Milo. Um, and towards the end of the Republic, the political situation had degenerated to such a point that it was had become common on election days um, for politicians or wannabe politicians to hire gladiators or local thugs to intimidate people into voting the way that they should because Roman voting involves all the men going down to the fields and lining up and physically stating their vote. So it was, if you have enough people hanging around staring at you with a stick, then um, it's fairly easy to intimidate people. And then one that starts to grow and grow until um, Clodius and Milo develop full-time really gangs or paramilitaries whose job it is to enforce what they want um on the streets of rome so whenever there is an election then they will go around and beat up whoever needs to be beaten up in order to make sure that you know the wool workers guild of region 11 is going to vote in the right direction Mm -hmm. um and they also like to get into fights with one another um, but it and the battle is that you're talking about is the battle where Clodius eventually is killed uh, because a gladiator stabs him in the back. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is a full degeneration of the political system of Rome, which is supposed to be at least somewhat democratic. Mm-hmm. But because it is such a direct form of democracy, it's very easy for people to see exactly how people are voting and to intimidate them in that way and for them that to grow into people having full-time full-time paramilitaries that support their their actions that make sure that anything that they want to pass through anywhere goes through because they also intimidate other senators they burn cicero's house down at one point mm-hmm. um they are a violent um inaction of what these people want um it always reminds me i live in belfast now um and when i read it now living here i see you know um they are paramilitary organizations basically they are mini little armies that act on on behalf of one politician Mm -hmm. and and you noted in the book that uh their their fights would they might not target roman citizens you know the average citizen but their their fights would cause um 
injuries and damage to property and yeah. and that sort of um, thing. A lot and people would, you know, die. <laughs> and this, but that's the kind of thing, this is a, one of the annoying problems with the Roman sources is that the Roman sources will only know if the person who dies is a senator or maybe a, a high level equestrian or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that they talk about the frequency of the violence um, and the way that they use the violence in order to pass votes and to punish people who don't vote the way that they should do, you can infer that there are a lot of in kind of innocent bystanders or people who are just trying to run their, you know, bookshop um, who are being, whenever they set fire to something, there's a whole load of buildings of wooden buildings that get burned down. And those are homes of people who have to rebuild it. Um, but you won't, they only mention their names if it's Cicero's house that gets burned down. Right. And there was another part where you mentioned um, this might've been part of the politics of Rome where the soldiers were, we're sometimes told, you know, you go and fight for, for Rome, but you don't even have your own piece of land to call yeah. your own. Are you able yeah. to talk about that a bit? So that is a very long running problem for the Republic, mostly, especially as the Rome is building its empire. Um, and it is an issue. Land reform is an issue which absolutely plagues Roman history um, from almost the minute that it becomes a Republic mm-hmm. um, through to pretty much uh, Julius Caesar. (laughs) That is something that people are obsessed with, which is that as they expand into Italy, their economic system divides really, really dramatically into people who are very, very rich and people who have nothing. And there's not a lot in the middle. Um, And the rich absorb the land. And as they invade more and more of Italy and take over more and more of Italy. They absorb that land that was agricultural land belonging to these people in uh, southern Italy, for example, who were happily living their living their lives. All of a sudden, those people um, become either enslaved people working on land, pleasure land that now belongs to some Roman guy, um, or they are completely disenfranchised um, and just turfed off of their land. And Italy gets turned into a a lot of lovely houses and gardens for very rich people. Um, and that disenfranchises huge swathes of uh, people, but also of Roman citizens who are eligible to fight in the army and who technically are promised after their 16 years of service or 12 years of service, depending on when it is, that they will be given a plot of land in Italy um, to farm. And that's going to be their reward for fighting. Mm-hmm. But they very swiftly run out of land to give people. And they start putting them in colonies in other places, but that's not necessarily what Roman soldiers from Rome or Italy want they want to come home um, and they want to have a plot of land that they like a little acre of land that they can farm for themselves. Um, and so very early on, there starts to be political factions that argue that they will reform the land by basically taking it all away um, and then parceling it all out so that everybody will have a bit of land and nobody will have too much. Mm-hmm. And every time this comes up, the 
political elite of Rome, the Senate, are also the economic elite. There is an economic barrier to getting in. You have to have, um, it changes as time goes on, but you have to say, say a million sesterces a year in order to get in. Um, mm. So they are automatically the people who own all of the land um, and they are constantly being asked to vote to take their own possessions away from themselves mm. um, and then give it to soldiers who they hate. So over and over again, it happens that they strike it down. People are um, accused of being treasonous for suggesting it. Um, it is a regular accusation that... People who suggest it are doing it purely for popularity so that the kind of plebeian populace of Rome and Italy will make them a king. That is a very common um, accusation. Mm -hmm. And then they get executed for treason. Uh, it all comes to a massive head with Tiberius Gracchus in 133 BCE because he is apparently very dedicated to land reform and to resolving the issues that this causes, because one, not being able to give people land means that you have an ageing um, an aging army who are not leaving. Um, and it's hard to get people to join the army if you're not going to keep your promises to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they're not yet at a point where they are, have, uh, they're recruiting from outside of Rome, basically. They still have this idealized vision of Roman soldiers being Roman soldiers. Uh, and it's causing a lot of issues. And then they're having people who are leaving the army coming back and not having anywhere to go. They're homeless, basically. They're clogging up the city. They're having a developing underclass. Um, so he appears to be genuinely dedicated and he tries to set up a commission that will that is separate from the Senate itself, mm -hmm. um, at which will audit everybody's land and take back um, stuff that people shouldn't have because people keep giving themselves gifts and <sighs> land that's technically been put aside for the poor to farm gets rented by uh, senators and then never actually allowed for use and that kind of thing. They're very corrupt mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they find ways around things. And he tries to genuinely set up a commission which they can't find a way to hobble basically um they can't find a way to dismantle within the senate as they have with previous attempts to do this mm -hmm. uh, and so they try instead to prevent him from being elected by and this is where the real beginnings of the violence within the um, political system emerges where they start to they call will start riots and things at the elections um in order because you can't if there's too much trouble then everybody calls the election off for the day um and it degenerates eventually into after several failed attempts to hold an election so that tiberius can get his position as tribune so that he can enact his commission uh, where they are so furious and so afraid that he's going to take everything away from them. Um, because as far as they're concerned, they are in the right. This is their land that they've inherited or bought legally, or most of it's been in the Roman hands for, you know, a hundred years by now, 400 years sometimes. Um, 
they hold an emergency meeting and it degenerates very badly into the Pontifex Maximus, who's the head priest, um, screaming that he's going to save the Republic by himself if he has to, Mm -hmm. uh, and leading a mob of senators in their togas to um, attack the election. And they chase Tiberius up onto the Capitoline Hill and then beat him to death with bits of bench that they have torn apart with Mm -hmm. their own hands. Um, and that is kind of the end of land reform. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, after uh, that is basically um, a real warning that um, that this is what's going to happen if you attempt to to redistribute the land, mm. and that that situation never gets resolved. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Tiberius was a general, right? Tiberius Gracchus. Yes. He was a politician. Um, oh, he was um, very dedicated to uh, political life. I think he had some um, military experience because most Roman senators did, but he was very dedicated to political life. His brother was a bit more military, Gaius Gracchus. Um, and and now Caesar, was he um, trying to institute land reform as well before his... Um... He was. He was, um, well... He said he was. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Caesar is very much um, a, what's called a populare. So the two political parties that emerge in Rome in the late Republic are called the Optimates, who are like the elite, who called themselves the best ones, which is tells you everything you need to know about them. Um, and then the populares, who are the popular ones, who are basically populists, like they will um, encourage or advocate for... Uh, policies which will help the plebs and Caesar's popularity very much comes from the fact that he is populares and he is very dedicated to his troops and his troops are very dedicated to him mm-hmm. um, and he cultivates an army and legions who love him personally because he rewards them highly and he promises them that they will have um, land and they will have massive rewards whenever they do whatever for him. Mm. Never really, well, he does, but um, they never really get their patch of land in Italy, but they get a lot of money out of him. So mm, okay. <laughs> they can buy their own land. <laughs> now, it's interesting that he was, um, I guess, about to go campaigning in Parthia um, mm. before his, you know, the Ides of March. Before his demise, yeah, literally days later he was supposed to be going, um, which is part of what terrifies the assassins and the um, the group that come together to assassinate him so much, which is that he has he's led campaigns in Spain as governor of Spain, um, and then he's led very long campaigns in Gaul. And during that time he has... Um, largely just done whatever he wants and enriched himself, enriched his troops, made them very, very loyal to him. And his career has very much been built on the back of those campaigns. Mm -hmm. And if he goes to Parthia, which is a long way away, then he is uh, probably going to be successful. There's a reasonable chance. He's a very, very good general. Um, He is... A unique thinker, Caesar, he will always come up with, because he doesn't abide by any rules of anything that anyone has previously set down, really, in politics or in war, he will just come up with a solution that other people say 
would never even think of like no one wouldn't occur to anyone else to build a second wall <laughs> in a uh, <laughs> if you've been being like if other troops are coming and you're in the middle of a siege um and he thinks of things that no one else would ever think of and he does things that no one else would ever think of so if anyone was going to be successful in Parthia at that time it would probably be Caesar but if he's gone for a long time with troops, yet more troops who will love him, um, being dictator for life, he has already in Rome, um, in preparation for his leaving, has outlined who is going to be consul and tribune and a deal and all of the political, the magistracies for the next few years. Um, so he's planned out everything that's going to happen and if he leaves to go to Parthia and is successful there, then there is no chance of ever getting rid of him. Mm. <laughs> like there is the situation is never going to go back to what they think is normal unless they kill him in pretty much immediately. I'm speaking with Emma Sethan, author of A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. You can find more information about her work at emmasouthern.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. I'm amazed that he actually went to the Senate you know, considering how frequent, how commonplace political violence was, you know, yeah. did he feel like, I, you know, obviously the sources are unlimited, but it's like, you know, do you feel so <laughs> invulnerable that something like this couldn't happen? Well, the Senate is supposed to be, the Senate is a, a sacred space. Mm -hmm. Like when you enter into where there is a senatorial meeting, then it is, you are banned from having weapons there. Um, and it is considered to be a kind of a, a, a religious violation to to take violence into the Senate House. There's lots of violence in the Campus Martius when they do the elections and in the streets, but there's never really been violence in that space because everyone respects it so much. Hmm. Uh, and you have, you know, you have to sacrifice before you go in there. You have to be cleansed before you go in there. It is a very special space when you are entering a entering a senatorial meeting which is partly why he feels safe there and there are times when for example under Tiberius there is a case where uh, a guy is accused of doing all kinds of things and one of the things he's accused of is carrying a sword into the senate house um, and when the comes to the trial they strike that uh, they strike that charge off because it's too it's kind of too terrible for they're like nobody would ever do that that is such a terrible thing to do that no one would ever genuinely do that even after seeing that if this had happened to caesar mm -hmm. um 
And that is part of why the assassins, Brutus and Cassius and other Brutus, choose to do it there, because it is the one place where he will least expect it. Um, it's the one place where no one else will have weapons, so no one else will be able to fight back. It's the one place where he won't have a guard, because taking weapons into that space is so so unthinkable that that's the only place that it will be possible to attack him. So that's why he feels safe there. Um, and also why it shocked Rome so much that it occurred there. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about uh, gladiators. So I know you you cover different, many different types of murder, but um, you you said you met you talk about gladiator yeah. uh, fighting. Um, the thing I've often heard, and, and you can correct me, you know, if I'm wrong, please do. Um, you know, the gladiators often didn't fight to the death; that they, it was more spectacle, and that they were valuable so they didn't often kill each other but but can you talk a, a, about that yeah so that is true because they are highly trained um and very valuable people um, and not all of them are enslaved the vast majority of them are some of them are criminals who are um condemned to you know they're condemned to be gladiators for five years or whatever and if they survive to the end of that five years then uh, they get released hmm. or um some people uh decide to sell themselves into being a gladiator because it becomes quite cool to be a gladiator hmm. but the nobody really knows there's kind of guesstimates on how often uh, a gladiatorial fight would end in an actual deliberate death hmm. and it probably is no more than a third of the time um because one they're very valuable and two the death is not really the purpose of it most of the time the purpose of it is that romans are very martial and they love at a kind of bone deep level the idea of one-on-one -on -one combat or two-on-two -two combat and it is a lot more of the time like fencing or boxing where it is about the fight and until one person or one group of people has to surrender um, and the fight is the purpose of it and sometimes if um the fight's gone really really well or if a if so just in the mood really then sometimes the um, gladiators will die mm -hmm. uh and sometimes it just happens in the course of the in the course of the fight basically someone will take a bad knock to the head or i suspect we from the archaeological finds you find quite a lot of uh, gladiators who seem to have pretty bad head wounds mm. um so probably more died off screen uh in kind of medical beds than died on the <laughs> <laughs> died in the arena but when they do happen, it is a really big deal, and they are they do tend to be um, recorded in graffiti or something like that. So one of the ones that I write about is a guy called Spiculus, who became the most famous gladiator of his age because he kind of came out of nowhere, out of a, a gladiatorial school in Capua, and his first ever fight, which was in Pompeii, he beat a 16-time champion. So hmm. the guy that he beat had fought 16 times, had defeated each and every single one of his opponents and was the kind of hero of the town. And Spiculus um, defeated him and then killed him. And someone did a beautiful piece of graffiti of this on a tavern wall down the road um, and drew Spiculus killing him. And this kick-started his career and he was then taken to Rome. And what we have is loads of 
glasses so like souvenir glasses (laughs) so i think that the romans are quite commercial and so they do have like souvenirs so if you go and see a cool fight then you can buy a souvenir afterwards um and they made all of these glasses of spiculus defeating his enemies um and he kills loads of them um and that seems to have become like his like his unique selling point <laughs> is that he more often than not will kill his opponent, um, mm. even if they're asking for mercy. Mm. Uh, and we have, I think, nine, which is a lot, um, glasses which show his victories and him killing his opponents, which people had in their houses. <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, and he then became the he then became the favorite gladiator of Nero. And when Nero wanted to kill himself, he asked Spiculus to kill him, and uh, Spiculus just never replied to the message. That, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a difficult position to be in. Yeah, it is because if that goes wrong, <laughs> um, but uh, but it seems from what we can gather, we do not have a lot of information about what actually happened in an average fight. We don't have a lot of descriptions of fights that occurred. We have the we have things like glasses and graffiti and odd other bit of souvenir material where people write about um, either extraordinary outcomes or outcomes that were really cool for them. But the only outcome that we have that is a description is um, from a poem by Marshall in the second century where he describes one where nobody won, where they'd just been going on for so long with nobody winning that eventually, um, this is actually in the Colosseum as well, so it had just been going on for so long that everybody was getting bored. So the emperor <laughs> called <laughs> called a tie and was like, look, you both win. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But apparently that was unusual enough that he wrote a poem about it. How often did they, did they restage, you know, great battle victories or that sort of thing in in gladiator combat? Uh, Surprisingly often um, they have um, spaces already by the, uh, by Julius Caesar builds a space for holding naval battles. Um, and putting people on little boats it's generally a special occasion kind of thing so if you're opening a big set of games or if you're celebrating a particular victory or so claudius has one in order to celebrate the draining of a lake that goes wrong uh so they've built this um because they're running out of land in Italy, they have attempted, they drain a lake called the Fusine Lake. um, And they, so they, it's a very clever piece of engineering work. They dig out underneath it uh, and then they put gates in and the plan is that they're going to open the gates and then the lake will drain out and then they'll have all of this arable land that they can farm, Mm -hmm. Um, which would have been great. And so they hold this massive battle where they get something like thousands of enslaved people and gladiators to reenact battles on the lake. And then the plan is that at the end of that, when it's full of dead bodies, they will open the lake and it will drain out. Um, and they open the gates and nothing happens and everybody just sits there for <laughs> oh. God knows how long. It's very awkward for everybody involved. <laughs> um, but that's a big, you know, that's a big special occasion. That's the kind of thing that you would talk about. A one-on-one or five-on-five, that's a more everyday occasion. So let me turn to... um the resources you used for this book. How, how did you do your research? Uh, <laughs> uh, lots and lots of reading of sources. I spent like a year reading as much as I could looking for 
looking for things that look like murders, basically, and making uh, so all of the narrative sources of history that I could find, but there's big gaps there, which is always a problem. Um, but you're surprised at when you start to look for them, how many you find. So things that I've been reading for years, like Tacitus's history of the Julio-Claudians, when you open and start looking for murders that happen out like within and without the imperial family you suddenly find a surprising amount of of people murdering their wives by throwing them out of windows or um casting spells is a thing that uh that comes up a lot because romans believe very strongly in magic um Hmm. And and then I also read quite a lot of epitaphs. So because the Romans have a very, what's called an epigraphic habit, they like to, they're really obsessed with their own memory. So they like to, when they have the resources, write quite long epitaphs about their lives and the lives of their loved ones um, when they die. Uh, and you find quite a few where they will say, this is you know, here lies my daughter, Julia Restita, who was killed at the age of 10 when she was walking home by somebody who stole her jewellery, mm-hmm. um, which is one that I found, or one about a girl who was killed by her husband when he threw her in the, he threw her in the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and epitaphs were really interesting, an interesting place to find murders or people who believed that their loved ones had been murdered but had no further recourse like they were never going to get into any court documents they were never going to get into any narrative histories because they're just average people but what they can do is spend the money that they've got to have you know Orpheus killed my daughter written on some stone and then put that at the side of the road so that people will know about it Hmm. so how are all these sources recorded you know in a way you can easily access them or did you have to go to originals thankfully they are <laughs> thankfully there's been massive digitization processes in the past few years so the um it's a thing called the corpus inscriptionum latinum online which has um just about every just about every latin language inscription of any kind even if it just says mile to online and mm-hmm. they are huge volumes but um but they're all thankfully digitized right now um, and then there is a wonderful resource which is unfortunately not free but probably should be right, which is called the low classical library online and they are i don't know if you can see them on my uh, oh, there, but those red ones along the top <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all low classical library and they are parallel text so it's got their latin or greek on one side and then a basic translation on the other side so they're amazing Mm -hmm. i do collect them because i love them um but uh but i have i have access to that so that is like virtually every text that you could possibly want online to be able to scour through (laughs) um looking for what you need to so i've been really lucky with that and having institutional access to a lot of online resources that you can use so i don't have to go to physical libraries as often as you might think (laughs) okay Uh, what did you come across during the research for this book um what did you come across that most surprised you oh the thing that i think most surprised me actually the big just because i'd never really thought about it was the number of people who believe that their loved ones have been murdered by magic who believe Mm -hmm. that their children or wife or whatever 
has been cursed by somebody or been killed by a witch and you know and there's no way of knowing what they really died of but as soon as you start thinking about it any disease that looks unusual anything that involves a strange rash or weird pains or that can't be immediately immediately assigned to a physical cause because the romans still work on the basis of humors so as far as they're concerned there's the four humors and if it can't be ascribed to one of those or an imbalance in those then it could well be magic or witchcraft and they believe very strongly in it and I found a lot of epitaphs of people who genuinely believe that their freed woman who ran away has poisoned, has um, has cursed their daughter, and then their daughter has died of long illness, or people who have suffered long illness that we would now have a medical explanation for, but which, as far as they can see, comes out of nowhere, and they waste away and die, and they genuinely believe to the point of writing it in stone and telling everybody that they know that this that their loved one has been murdered by magic by a witch or and that was I just had never really thought about magic that hard in the ancient world but mm. once you start to look for it you find that it is everywhere and you find how hard they believed in it and then you look at the curse tablets that people write about one another mm. like which are really common. There's thousands of them. So they're like little bits of lead and they would write a curse on it and then roll it up um, and put a nail through it and either bury it or put it in a, an altar. Um, and they say things, you know, some of them are about sports teams that are like, I hope everyone in the green racing team dies. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> uh, so angry sports fans are not a new thing. Yeah. Um, but some of them are like, you know, I know that Orpheus stole my pot and I hope that his skin falls off or please make it so that this person is cursed with uh, uh, no luck and their their eyes dry out and like really horrible things that they come up with that they want to happen to one another. And you, it was a kind of a real eye-opener into how different the worldview was that a lot of people in the ancient world had whereby mysterious things were were given a very clear cause and that cause was magic hmm. interesting and um, a lot of people who died of perfectly natural causes who died of you know and they lupus or weird yellow fever or whatever who were believed to have been murdered so they saw more murders anywhere than there probably actually were yeah and i get you know I mean, I've often read of, you know, reading omens before battles or even yeah. even Caesar reading omens about going to the Senate, I think. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess yeah. that shouldn't surprise, surprise me, but I guess there, it does. <laughs> yeah, I think mean, it's like you kind of get a bit, I don't know, you kind of gloss over it when you're reading because you're waiting to get to the other bit, like that they've sacrificed nine chickens or whatever in order to get to the, to find out whether they're allowed to. Uh, go into battle. One of my favorite stories that um, is in the book that I will tell at any given opportunity is um, Publius Claudius Pulcher, who during the war with Carthage, one of the, it's the second Punic War, he goes with like 120 ships and they go down to Sicily to fight Carthage and they take the sacred chickens with them because the deal before you go into battle as a Roman, you have to check with the sacred chickens whether the gods say that it's okay. Um, and 
what you're supposed to do is put some food down and then they eat. Um, and we do most of the time, you just don't feed them for a couple of days. Beforehand. Um, but they're on a boat, which, and this is a brand new Navy. So they're not used to being on a boat. So they've just been taken from Rome and sailed down to Sicily. And so they, he puts the food down and the chickens don't eat. Um, and so he throws them into the sea shouting, if they won't eat, let them drink and kind of sails off into battle. Eventually has to limp home having lost 93 of his ships uh, pretty much the entire Roman Navy um, and is prosecuted for sacrilege <laughs> you should have listened to the chickens <laughs> oh, don't mess with the sacred chickens they know what they're talking about <laughs> um, yeah that's <laughs> that's a pretty funny it's one story. of my favorite Roman stories <laughs> oh yeah it's a good one so obviously there are a lot of gaps in the history here but what question exists that you really would like an answer for <laughs> i would really like to know whether tiberius killed germanicus uh, so tiberius is second emperor and germanicus is his adopted son mm -hmm. uh, and he is um married to augustus's granddaughter and he is like the Princess Diana or the JFK of his time, like he is adored by the people of Rome, that he's handsome and charming and young and he's got loads of children and everyone thinks he's wonderful. Um, and nobody likes Tiberius because Tiberius is very grumpy. Uh, and Germanicus goes off to Syria to resolve a political crisis in um, over in Armenia. And while he's there, he gets into an argument with the governor of Syria and then gets some kind of illness and dies. And everyone believes very, very strongly that the governor of Syria, who is a close friend of Tiberius's, has poisoned or killed by magic, actually, um, yeah. Germanicus, because Tiberius is jealous of him. Hmm. Uh, and eventually Piso, who's the governor, is put on trial. And there's just a very, very general belief that he absolutely killed Germanicus um, and that Tiberius was responsible and Agrippina, uh, Germanicus's wife, believes it for the rest of her life. She tells everybody that this is what happened. And I am more suspicious. I think that he was marching around. He marched around Egypt for ages and he marched around Syria and people from the west who go to the east tend to get bitten by something and then come down with like dengue fever or something. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways that people in the ancient world died of strange things. It just happened at a really bad time. Mm -hmm. But I would really love to, there's a story in Tacitus where he says that his parents told him that there was a rumor that Piso had a letter from Tiberius saying I want you to kill Germanicus, um, mm. but that Piso killed himself before he could show it to anybody. Mm. And if I could answer one question, that's what it would be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it's a niche one, but no, no, it's good. It's good. Um, so obviously, the book is about murder, and it's there's violence all throughout. But <laughs> was there any one thing that had an emotional impact on you that you came across, and that actually could be positive or negative? Uh, the infanticide chapter was incredibly hard to write because, I mean, the child death rate in in the ancient world, the more kind of child mortality is huge, but there is there's a constant argument about whether the Romans practiced infanticide as a deliberate way of 
managing household size or managing family size and and like whether sex workers used infanticide as a form of family planning or contraception um and so reading a lot about infanticide and tiny little baby skeletons because they did not tend to bury infants under the age of kind of one um in they didn't have kind of funerals and burials for them they just would put them in a pot and then bury them in the garden so it was a very domestic thing Hmm. um and so sometimes when they are excavating when archaeologists are excavating sites they will find tiny little baby burials Hmm. um and pots with tiny infant skeletons in them and that was that was really hard to write about and think about like there's a site in England in York where they found 90 baby skeletons um, mm. from a period of about 400 years of those 90 skeletons. But still, it was uh, that was it was really hard to write about and think about just the number of tiny little babies that died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would be rough. Um... Yeah. My friend who had just had a baby when he read my book um, texted me and was like, why would you do this to me? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, uh, it is, you know, it is a debate that they would have and you have to deal with the fact that they do. It's always men who ha- don't have children who write about infanticide. Um, and it's, you know, it's people like Seneca mm. who nev- never had children and, and philosophers who for some reason never have kids who will write about killing monstrous in quote babies or unwanted babies as though it's something that happened all the time. Um, And because you don't have any, you don't have any female voices from the ancient world. You don't, and you rarely have any examples of people talking about when it's happened to their own children or in their own lives. Um, And when we know that children have died, they're silent on, the impact of that basically um that it's all kind of the only voice that you have specifically talking about it is people like seneca saying oh you know we when we have a monstrous baby we just kill them mm-hmm. as if it is a an everyday occurrence um so that's a, a hard thing to think about mm-hmm. yeah well um what in the research was most enjoyable for you <laughs> switch there. uh, uh oh that's a good question ashley I enjoy all of the, I enjoy finding things that, that haven't really thought about. So things like the magic and poison part, I really enjoyed, um, of uncovering all of these people who had died and then their family thought that they had been murdered. And I also really enjoy writing about the kind of political side of it so there's a section in there about um delatores about people who are professional informers um whose job it is or who have given themselves the job of um finding people saying things at dinner parties and then informing on them to the emperor um and therefore quite often getting rid of their political opponents or their personal opponents by doing so so there's a guy called regulus who becomes a very famous informer because his father was informed on at some point for doing something. And so Regulus grows up with a kind of burning passion for revenge in his heart um, and then spends his life digging up dirt on people and then 
prosecuting them for it and sometimes just coming up with ludicrous accusations. So he accuses one family of having a disrespectful surname Mm. um, and (laughs) (laughs) uh, because uh, I can't remember what it is now, but it's something to do with one of the, one of the Greek games and it's under Nero and he, Nero has won these games and given himself the name. And so uh, I say one, he's rolled up and done some songs and then everybody said, yes, well done. You're the emperor. Please don't hurt us. Um, And so Regulus takes it upon himself to uh, accuse this family who have a similar surname of therefore being disrespectful by not changing their surname. And when they say this has been our name for generations, like it's because my great, 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 great granddad won a victory in Greece. He says, no. Um, and he prosecutes them and wins and they get executed. <laughs> hmm. um, and then as an informer, you get half of their estate. So oh. their houses, their money, their possessions. Um, and also you get you get in the good graces of the emperor. So he does incredibly well under bad emperors. So he does brilliantly under Nero. And then he kind of retreats into the background under Vespasian. And then when Domitian becomes the emperor, he kind of bursts back onto the scene, suddenly listening in at people's doorways and saying, I heard that so-and-so said a disrespectful poem about you at the um, at a party the other day and then getting these people executed. And he is basically responsible for the deaths of about 15 people across these reigns and he profits massively from it and is everyone's terrified of him because he is so effective at what he does and he largely goes anyone who threatens him in any way he will find an accusation against them and he's kind of a mass murderer um but because he uses a system in such a clever way uh that it's not really on his hands he just brings the prosecution and it's not his fault if the emperor decides to execute them and then the state punishes them and chops their head off um but technically he is responsible for quite a lot of deaths Mm -hmm. and finding those people and the people who who you found ways to kill people in ways that are specific to that time and place and use the system for their own gain with absolutely no regard for human life um, was was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a really interesting guy, Regulus. He's a, there's a novel about him waiting to be written somewhere. Oh, I'm, I'm surprised one hasn't been. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, did you have any difficulties getting this book finished or published? No, thankfully. It was the hardest part was finding the limits of it. So a kind of a, a big part of the beginning of the book is talking about what is murder and how murder is defined mm-hmm. because I include a lot of things that on that the Romans wouldn't consider murder. And so the hardest thing was saying, do I just go with what the Romans think murder is? In which case the book ends on about page three um, because they don't really have a murder law for a lot of Roman history. It's uh, considered to be a domestic matter, a domestic justice, not a state matter until really late in Roman history. Um, And so that would end that. And then, if I'm not going to do that, then how do I define what murder is and what I, where I put the beginning and end of um, how I'm going to define it, basically? And in the end, I decided that 
murder is a really hard thing to define. It is an emotive term. And I spent, did a lot of reading of homicide studies and legal. Uh, I got really lost in American state law (laughs) for a really long time because american states are so varied in how they define what murder is second degree murder third degree murder manslaughter first degree manslaughter it's fascinating um and it you know you can just drive 50 miles from across one state line to the other and it changes completely Mm -hmm. um and in the end i decided that any deliberate homicide i would consider to be a murder and that I would then have have to break that down into different types of sections. So that was the hardest part. I was really lucky that I got two publishers who were very into the idea when I wrote a I wrote one chapter and a swed like an overview of what I wanted to write and two publishers thought so it sounded like a good idea. So okay. <laughs> I was really lucky that um there was in fact the first I think the first couple of publishers that it got sent to wanted it, so Hmm. Okay. Okay. Do you have any current writing projects that you want to talk about? I do. Um, I'm working on two at the moment. They're a bit different. They're both about Roman women. So one is a history of Rome in the history of the Roman Empire from the foundation of Rome to the fall uh, of Rome in 476, the last Western emperor, uh, through the lives of 15 women. But specifically looking at women who are not imperial or queens or um, not the women that you might immediately think of, but kind of a sidestep to the right. Uh, And the other is a biography of Agrippina the Elder, who is Germanicus's wife. (laughs) Okay, Okay. And it's why I'm so interested in why, how, how happened to Germanicus right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, But they will be out in about, I think they'll both be out in about 2023. Okay, okay. So with this book, um, what uh, ultimately, what do you want readers to take away from it? <laughs> that Rome was not a Rome was not a particularly admirable place in the way that we would think about it. Rome was a very martial society and a very violent place that had whose values were, for the most part, very much opposed to what I think we would like to think the best of our values are. Mm. Um, and the, the image of Rome, when you talk to people about it, when you see it on TV, is very often either just the army marching about being wonderful or is Cicero and some lads standing around some white columns in lovely white togas. Yeah. And part that is part of what Rome is, but so much more of it is quite grim and violent and not necessarily something to be admired. I kind of wanted to dirty up the image of Rome a little bit Mm -hmm. because I think people are often too nice about it and Mm -hmm. like to idealise it because we have this kind of neoclassicist coming out of the 17th, 18th century desire to think of, particularly in England, we like to think of ourselves as the new Rome and mm-hmm. America has a similar thing with the architecture, like lovely columns, everything looks like a temple. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency to see Rome as a place to be emulated and I like to scuff that image a little bit. So that's what I would like people to take away. But yeah, no, it's, it's more complicated than it looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing how the you know, a, a book on murder in Rome can touch on so many aspects of Rome, you know, that's you know, the political history, the military history to some extent, the social history. Um yeah. it's pretty interesting. It um, was 
this is why I assume somebody else would have written it before me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad I got to write it. I loved writing it. Yeah. So, so where do you have a web page or social media where people can follow updates on your work? I do. Um, it's emmasouthern.com, mm-hmm. um, which is not spelt like it sounds, um, but uh, it's emmasouthern.com or I'm at Nuclear Teeth on Twitter where I post most things. So you can find me there. Okay. And I'll spell your name for listeners and viewers. It's E-M-M-A-S-O-U-T-H-O-N.com. Okay. And everything is on there. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, I'm delighted to have been. When I was asked to be on Military History Broadcast, I was instantly terrified that you were going to ask me about battle tactics. But <laughs> I, so I'm delighted that you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Now, I go into different aspects of it. Um, I actually kind of avoid tactics and battles specifically. Not always, but, but I like to get in deeper. That's, so. that's good. Yeah. Uh, but thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you uh, very much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. In the next episode, I speak with Lawrence Burgreen about Francis Drake and the growth of the British Empire. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, Check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com. And follow me on Chris Alvarez, Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.